Hi, good evening, and welcome to the LSC uh, event for this evening. My name is Sarah Evans-Latsko, and I am an Associate uh, Professorial Research Fellow in the Personal Social Services Research Unit at LSC. Uh, and the event today forms part of the LSC Works, uh, Works Group. LSC Works is a series of public lectures that began in 2011 that showcases some of the latest research by LSC's academic departments and research centers in an accessible manner to the public. In each session, LSE academics will present key research findings demonstrating where appropriate the implications of their studies for public policy. It's held every two years, and a successful second series of LSE works was held in 2013 and continued with a third series in 2015. In 2017, LSE is delighted to continue the success of the LSE works with a fourth series of public lectures. And mental health issues will affect one in four of us, Tonight's event is focused on promoting mental health and the economic case for this. And it marks the eighth lecture in the 2017 series of the works. This event will explore findings from research that PSSRU has carried out on the economic case for the promotion of better mental well-being and the prevention of mental illness. And I'm pleased to welcome all of the speakers in this event tonight, and I will introduce them as they speak. Um, just to give you some background on PSSRU, it's one of the leading social care uh, research groups in the world. It's contributed in many ways to the development of national and local policies and frontline practice in the UK and elsewhere. Its reputation for high-quality, robust research has encouraged many national and local policymakers, commissioners, and service providers to request its support in generating evidence to inform discussions and decisions. Um, just a, a few notes about the, the structure of tonight's talk, and then I'll talk about, um, uh, then I'll introduce the speakers. So there are three speakers from PSSRU tonight, um, and that will be followed by two respondents. And we're going to keep questions to the end when everyone can uh, follow up on, on all of the talks. Um, and just a note about also social media for those of you who are tweeting. Um, the event is being recorded and audio and video recorded, and it's hoped that we'll, this will be available after the event. But those who are using Twitter uh, in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is here. It's LSE Works. Um, and just ask you to please keep your phones on silent if you, if you are tweeting. Um, uh, this, and this evening's, um, yeah, it, it should, event should be recorded and hopefully available also via podcast. Um, so I'm going to uh, introduce now the, the first speaker, um, who is uh, Professor uh, Martin Knapp, who is Professor of Social Policy and Director of PSSRU. He is also the Director of the NIHR Social School for Social Care Research, and his current research emphasizes are primarily dementia, child and adult mental health, autism, and long-term social care. Much of his work has an economic focus, and in all of it, he seeks to tease out the policy implications. He has published almost 500 peer-reviewed journal papers and 15 books, and his work has had numerous impacts on policy and practice in these areas. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Sarah. Um, okay, so, um, so what I'm going to do is just introduce 
um, some of the economic consequences of mental illness. Um, I'm going to be quite quick and then hand over to my colleagues who are going to talk through um, some of the research that they've been doing recently. Um, so we've seen the structure already. Um, I recognise one or two people here from the undergraduate course I teach, and they're going to say, oh, we've seen your slides before. And you have seen some of my slides before, so I apologise for that. But what Ava and uh, Dave are going to provide uh, later on will be completely new. So uh, hopefully that will be exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, let me explain a couple of things. The, the one in four, the little logo there at the bottom, uh, that's an image that was taken from the LSC Alumnus magazine about three years ago now, where they put this on the cover, uh, and the magazine that went out to all former students was focusing, had quite a few papers or discussion focusing on mental illness uh, and the one in four refers to the proportion of people in the population who will experience uh, a mental health problem uh, during their lifetime. So one or two slides just to set the scene in terms of what uh, mental illness means uh, and this slide I use this a lot, it's a very helpful slide, it's from something called the, the well, that's a big study looking at the global burden of disease, big group of international researchers, not, we're not part of that. Um, and what they've done on this slide is to look at the UK and they look at disability. Disability in a very broad sense, anything that in health or social care needs indeed that could create some dependency, some disability that people might experience, not just physical disability. And each of the columns... The height of the column is the total amount of health-related disability experienced by people in that particular age group. Uh, and you can see as you go from 0 to 6 days through to over 80 years, those column heights change, get gradually higher. And the bit in that sort of red um, shape in the middle there, that's the contribution that mental health problems make to that total burden of disease, that total disability uh, consequence. And what you can see particularly is that many of those mental health problems uh, contribute or develop in teenage and early adulthood and contribute a very sizable amount to the, the overall health rate of disability in that period. So a substantial contribution that's made. And then over on the right-hand side, that uh, high column, the sort of... Uh, peachy colour, I'm not sure what you call it, um, that will be dementia, uh, contributing the, the, the consequence of, dis of dementia to disability there. Now, what do we mean by mental health problems? Most of you, I'm sure, know this already, but this is another slide from that same uh, study. This is now global rather than just the UK. Thank you. Um, and what this is showing is for each of a run number of different mental health problems, what contribution do they make to this, this disability measure of impact? So the most common uh, and, and most impactful uh, mental health issue is depressive disorders. That's that blue um, shape at the top there. Um, the other two I've arrowed are anxiety disorders and drug use disorders. But you can see a whole range of things listed down the right-hand side that have picked up in this particular study at least, which are constitute what we think of as mental health problems. Now there are many consequences of mental illness, mental health issues, and I've just listed some of them there. Uh, a lot of distress and pain for people who experience it, impacts on their quality of life and, and well-being. People experience uh, often economic and social exclusion, uh, certainly stigma and discrimination. Sarah does a lot of work in the stigma area. Um, there's association with self-harm and suicide. Uh, there's 
problems that people will die early because of a number of things, including poor health behaviours, poor preventive activities. There's association with criminal activity, and just to emphasise, people with mental health issues uh, do seem to be associated with perpetration of crime. Some people are, but there are also very high rates of being victims of crime as well, and that's uh, something that sometimes gets forgotten. And then there can be impacts on other people, family, school, colleagues, uh, work colleagues and communities. So there are many impacts and some of those have economic consequences and we're going to tease out some of those um, in the session this evening. And I'm going to show you two slides. I've shown these slides hundreds of times but I find them very helpful from somebody's study many years ago now looking at the total economic impact of depression in England. Uh, and there's two slides. This is the first one. And if you look at the bits, the colours there, the bits in blue at the bottom are the health service consequences or the health service costs associated with depression. Uh, a big chunk of it is primary care med or medication delivered through primary care, uh, general practitioner time, inpatient, outpatient services. Um, that's a bit out of date, but it's still you can see a substantial cost falling to the health service. And then the bit in yellow is the cost of premature mortality. People with depression who are more likely to die early than the average in the population, and economists, hard-hearted as they are, put a cost on that uh, premature mortality. Now remember those two colours. Remember the blue, remember the yellow, because I'm going to take them into the next slide. So those are exactly the same figures in the blue and the yellow, the health service bit and the premature mortality bit. And this huge bit of the pie, this bigger pie now in red, is the impact on productivity. It's people with depression in this case who have difficulty getting a job or hanging on to a job. If they are in work, they probably have higher rates of absenteeism than people without depression. Uh, and so those will be costly. There's an also a presenteeism cost. People are at work but just not performing up to their full potential, uh, as can happen with many health issues. So the point we're making here is that depression is very common and it's treated uh, often very well uh, in the health service and that imposes costs. But actually outside the health service is where the bigger cost impacts will fall um, for this particular mental health problem. And then this slide, I took it, the Marmot review, Michael Marmot uh, did this review of inequalities in health-related issues, uh, and this slide comes from, it's not his data, but data he took from uh, published statistics, and I find it really powerful. If you look, this is the uh, employment rate for a whole range of different health issues. Mental illness at the bottom, what is it, 12% is the figure uh, given in this particular study, up to, I mean, Many different health issues will have an impact on employment rates, but mental health problems seem to have a particularly big impact. Okay, a couple more, oh, one more figure, and then some summary comments, and I'll hand over to, to Ava. Um, and this is a figure from the OECD. Um, from, they've done two very good reports on mental health issues across OECD countries and, in fact, a wider set of countries. And this one is about poverty rates. It's a slightly complicated slide, and as I always say with OECD, you'd think a organisation with as much money as OECD could afford more than one colour on its slides. Um, but, um, so they've got different shades of blue and if you're slightly colour blind you might have difficulty working out what they are. But if you take this, take the United Kingdom, I've put a circle around it there somewhere. So you take the United Kingdom, the three columns there, on the left hand side, this is 
being in poverty on the left hand side that very slightly lighter shade of blue is people with severe mental disorder the grey in the middle is moderate disorder and the darker blue on the right is people without mental disorder and of course these could have a whole range of other health problems these people but it's just focusing particularly on the mental health issue and so what you can see is that mental illness because of lots of reasons does leave many people in poverty much more likely to be in poverty than people without mental health problems and I put up there causation can run in both directions. By that I mean mental health problems can lead to these economic difficulties such as poverty, but poverty itself can be a risk factor for uh, mental health problems emerging or or becoming uh, more severe. Okay, my final slide then before I hand over. Um, What I've just put on here is a summary of some particular characteristics of mental health problems which I've called glorious. Uh, I don't mean, I mean that in a sort of ironic sense, uh, complexity. Um, What we have a high prevalence set of conditions uh, with quite early onset. Most mental health problems, except for dementia, most mental health problems will emerge in teenage years, some in childhood, teenage years, early adulthood. They are lifetime disorders. There are no cures. There are medications and other treatments that can help to alleviate symptoms, but you don't really cure the condition. And there's a very complex interplay between genes and environment. Genes certainly play a part. Environment plays a much bigger part uh, in those problems emerging. There are experiences that people have, stigma, discrimination, victimisation, and very complex links then to well-being. Um, There are strong links to suicide and self-harm, strong links to antisocial behaviour and crime, but in both directions, if you like, perpetration and victimisation. And so for mental, people with very severe mental health problems, we do have, most countries have the powers to compulsory detain people and to treat them, uh, to protect them, but that's a, 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 a power which we all know has been sometimes abused uh, in, in a number of different countries. And then finally, I'm going to focus on this, uh, there are high and wide-ranging and enduring costs, We've, I've just shown you a few of them, um, particularly in relation to employment, but other things there, and impacts on other people than the person experiencing the mental health issue. So I'm going to stop there and then uh, hand over, I guess, to Sarah, who's going to introduce our next speaker. Thank you, you, Martin. So our next speaker is Eva Maria Bonin, who is going to discuss promoting mental well-being in schools. Eva Maria Bonin is Assistant Professorial Research Fellow within PSSRU at LSE, and Eva is a health economist, and her main interests are the economics of prevention and promotion in mental health and children's services, the economic costs of childhood health and mental health problems, and evaluating services and interventions for children, young people, and families, and methodological questions around estimating societal costs of mental health problems. Thanks, Eva. Thanks, Sarah. Um, and I think we're going to touch on all of these uh, tonight, so that's going to be fun for me. don't know about you. Um, so... Which button is it? Found the button. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about mental well-being as a concept and, and what that is and how it might be different from mental health. And I think that distinction is quite subtle, potentially. Um, and then I'm going to talk about two recent studies, and one is recent, one is ongoing, um, that touch on mental well-being and some of the issues that arose from that. Um, 
And it's all about working towards making the economic case for improving mental well-being as opposed to mental health. And we've got mental illness, which is relatively straightforward when you look at it sort of scientifically. It's a diagnosable disorder of some kind. You've kind of got a scale and somebody scores whichever way they need to score, so they have that or they don't. Um, we then have mental health, which is the absence of disorder, but that's not really that satisfying, I think, to most people, so there's probably a little bit more to mental health already. Then we've got positive mental health, which is more about resilience and coping, so that's skills-based. It's about growth and self and being in yourself, basically. So that's already becoming a bit more complex and vague, but it's also probably capturing people's experience a bit better. And then we've got mental well-being, which I think is possibly quite related to positive mental health. Um, and it's very vaguely defined in the literature. You can do a lot of reading, and you'll always end up again at mental health, um, which is, which is a, a, a journey to go on. But I think uh, what we can pull out is that mental well-being is about subjective well-being plus something around social functioning, maybe. Um, so I think those are the concepts that we're working with in the literature. Um, now, we did something quite exciting for an economist. Uh, we actually went and talked to some young people. Um, we had help in that. Um, this is an organization called Common Room who facilitate these sessions so you, you don't go full-on economist on them. Um, <laughs> so we asked them, what, what, do you, what, what does mental well-being actually mean to you? Um, and they were incredibly insightful. And I think if that's sort of the next generation, then I think we're in good hands. So it means to them a person feeling like they're making a positive and useful contribution. It's broader than just emotional and mental health. It's your economic well-being and your physical health and well-being. So a really broad concept. And it rests on knowing how to help yourself and how to seek support from others. And finally, it means flourishing in all aspects of your life. And I was kind of thinking, not sure, I'm glad I asked, because that makes my job really hard. Um, but you can see that there's um, a lot more to that concept for young people than we're possibly capturing if we're just talking about absence of mental health problems. Um, there are now some measures to capture mental well-being. One is the WEMWEBS, Warwick Edinburgh for Mental Well-Being. I'm going to say scale. Um, and it's, it's, it's a list of positively worded statements, for example, I've been feeling good about myself, I've been feeling useful. So you can see that that seems to capture a lot of what the young people actually said. So that seems to be, in terms of just hitting the concept on the head, that seems to be quite good. The problem with that is at the moment, we don't have those nice cut-off scores. So we can't say if you score 25, and that's not the score, but then you have good mental well-being, or if you're below, you don't. Um, so we have a measurement problem in terms of defining that. Um, so linking that to um, mental health problems and how we could maybe uh, make, make an economic case for mental well-being in relation to mental health, we know that a big problem in mental health uh, is that young people especially, at a time when they're quite vulnerable to developing pro uh, problems that might last a lifetime and then have these enormous costs associated with them, they're actually not seeking help. So fewer than 25 percent of young people with mental health needs actually access comes. And there are lots of reasons for that. There's a lack of services and funding. There's stigma attached to that. But there's also possibly um, another reason that I want to zoom in on a little bit. Um, again, going back to the young people, they said that poor mental well-being actually leads to, or is, uh, is, is, is kind of epitomized by having difficulties in relationships with others, Poor mental well-being is sometimes constructed as them being difficult rather than distressed, and that's associated with shame. 
is related to poor self-esteem, low expectations for themselves and also towards others by low aspirations. Um, they said they don't have, or it's related to not having that experience of being worthwhile or valued and a lack of self-care can lead to poor mental and physical health and well-being. So basically, not seeking help early might actually be a result of poor mental well-being. And I think that's a really important point, that the problem itself might influence help-seeking behavior. So I've got two examples of, of interventions that try to address that and that try to provide accessible interventions for young people that are acceptable, perhaps even fun. Not sure about that one, but um, one is Discover. Um, it's, uh, the, the proper title is Early Intervention for Inner City Youth, so London, um, CBT Workshops for Anxiety and Depression in 16 to 18 year olds. I'm not sure how you get to the acronym DISCOVER from that. If you can, give me a call. Um, they are school-based CBT workshops and they're basically they're focused on problem solving and developing resilience in young people who can be very stressed, especially around 16, 18, that's exams, very stressful time. Um, it was a pilot study, so um, the team recruited 10 schools and randomized the schools, and young people were then recruited within the schools. Um, and we had 155 participants, very low dropout, and that's down to a lot of the engagement work that the researchers did. We were, I think luck, we were lucky in that trial. Possibly, I'd say the team made their own luck by selecting their staff very, very well, but um, the engagement work that, that was done was very intensive and led to actually these low levels of dropout. And I think this is, when working with young people and with schools, this is a big, big thing to remember that you really need to put in the work to engage people because otherwise this will not happen. Um, the aims were to test feasibility. So can we actually engage schools and participants? In this, this case, they could. It was also about selecting outcome measures. I'm gonna come back to that one. Um, acceptability, the students actually liked the intervention, they did. Um, that it was accept, accept, accessible to everyone because there's also some kind of socioeconomic gradient in access to services. And that was also the case, so they captured the school population quite well. But just in terms of outcomes, because I think that's one of the interesting things about the study. Um, if you look at this, what we want to focus on is kind of the line in the middle of the box, because that's the average for the group. Um, and on the left there, we've got the waiting list control. So these were young people who didn't get the intervention. Um, and we can see on this clinical score that measures anxiety in sort of a diagnosable way. There is a bit of movement downwards, so they're getting a little bit better, which is quite normal to see that, that people just get better even if you don't intervene. It's not a lot, but there's some movement there. And we've got the experimental group, so people who got the workshop, they move too. They move a bit more than the controls. Um, and I think it was a significant improvement. It wasn't huge, though. And now we're looking at uh, WEMWEBS, and we see again in the control group, a little bit of upward movement um, and quite a bit more in the experimental group. And statistically, um, this was the biggest effect that we found. Or, not me personally, but it was found. Um, and I think this is really interesting because um, one reason for that might be that people started out with actually not a high level of clinically relevant problems. They were just generally unwell in, in terms of their mental uh, well-being. So it's, I think it's, a, it's an interesting implication for any sort of preventative research, especially with low-level interventions that are provided in, in, in a universal setting, that we might have to think about what sort of effect sizes are we expecting, and if it's on a measure that's, that's, that's hard to quantify, um, how can we still make the economic case for such an intervention? Because if I could say 50% fewer young people are going to have anxiety, 
I'd be golden because I know, I know what that costs. Mm-hmm. I don't know what mental well-being costs at the, at the moment. So this is a much, much more difficult problem. Which leads us on then to um, Head Start, which is another... It's a big lottery strategic investment uh, aiming to improve mental well-being of 10 to 16-year-olds. And this is quite a bit bigger than a pilot study. It's up to six, uh, 75 million per partnership in six local partnerships. They've just started um, investing that money, and it's going to go on until 2023. This is about developing local interventions that are cross-disciplinary, multi-layered, and it's an integrated prevention strategy, strategy mostly uh, delivered through schools again. Um, it's about ensuring that the systems locally change in such a way that these interventions can be maintained over time. So even when that additional funding goes away, they're hoping that that will stay in place. Um, And it's also about developing a robust evidence base around what works, Um, because as you can imagine, with such a vaguely defined concept, there's actually not that much concrete evidence that tells you this works. It's it's a very young sort of of field. Um, So there is an evaluation attached to Head Start that is now in its third phase, so it's incredibly thorough. Preparation over two phases now, action. and we are involved in the economic um, evaluation. We're going to, I'm going to talk about that in a bit. But the way we think Head Start will work is basically mental well-being is going to be improved. There are going to be um, measured reductions in onset of mental health problems. There are going to be more positive transitions, so better attainment, engagement in school. There's going to be a reduction in risky behavior, behavior substance abuse, teen pregnancy, criminality. Um, and they're probably all interrelated as well. And then finally, down the line, all that will lead to improved employability. That's that's the main theory, the the mechanism for Head Start. In the economic evaluation, we're going to develop models and frameworks to understand the costs of the interventions. That's the easy bit. But then the downstream savings from intervening so early to improve mental well-being. The way we're going to do that is to calculate the cost of poor mental well-being, and that's related to what Martin just showed you. We know what the costs are for depression and so on, so we need to find something similar to say this is what we pay for poor mental well-being. And then we're going to see how much can we possibly avoid there. So it's a cost-avoided approach because we're preventing problems. So where we are now with that, um, mapping out the sort of potential costs of poor mental well-being, um, we know there's a link to mental health problems. We know there's a link from mental health problems to criminality. We know there's a link with poor attainment. And we also know that that leads to reduced productivity, both of them. Um, what you can see there is that it's difficult at the moment from the evidence base to make a link from poor mental well-being to anything other than mental health problems. So I've basically gone in a very large circle and ended up back, for, back where I started um, and what, what I tried to get away from. And if I want to um, now contrast that, Uh, with the views of young people again. We're probably capturing some of that. So we're we're capturing some of their economic well-being in terms of employability. We're capturing mental health. But there's a lot of that, 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 that nuance and that detail that we're actually not reflecting in that. And if we think about economics as a, as a science that really works from the point of view of the individual and individual valuations, not just of goods and services that we trade, but also states of being, um, then I think we're, we're possibly missing a, track, a trick there. Um, but I think... Um, it, 
the, the question I think that, that raises is whether, whether we need to, if, we're kept, if we know the cost of mental health problems are so large and we're capturing that, do we actually capture the main bit? Is that enough to make an, a good argument? Um, and I think the other questions that it raises is implications for access and service design. How might we need to rethink that um, when, we're, when we're thinking about mental health problems and um, uh, mandatory sectioning, for example, that's quite different to a young person with, with low-level mental health concerns, maybe even just um, having access to a low-level service and, and, and getting help early. And how can we work effectively with young people in schools? Can we put in the time and the resources to make that work? And if we're um, making the case for that, is there an issue about around effect sizes in these low-level interventions that we need to consider? And do we maybe need to rethink the way we make this economic case if we want to focus on mental well-being rather than just mental health problems. Thanks very much, Eva, for highlighting this uh, important gap, I think, and um, uh, in thinking about how we can better conceptualize it. Um, so we're going to hear next from uh, Dave McDade, who is going to talk about intersectoral actions to promote mental health and well-being. And Dave is an associate professorial research fellow within PSSRU. He is involved in a wide range of work on mental health and public health in the UK, Europe, and at the global level. He has published over 300 peer-reviewed papers and reports, including a report for the UK Department of Health, which looked at the economic case for investing in mental health promotion and mental disorder prevention, which we'll include a bit here. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. Let's see if I can work this technology. Um, actually, I, I'm assuming that most people in this audience don't have time to watch daytime television. <laughs> You're all going to say no. I hope you are, anyway. But... Um, Perhaps I shouldn't say this as well, but I happened to be watching some daytime television this morning. And uh, it was the Victoria Derbyshire programme on BBC Two that I was watching. And there was a really powerful interview with this young lad, who was 21, I think he is now, Jason, I forget his surname, apologies to him. But the point was, he was speaking about his experiences of dealing with uh, mental health issues that had been triggered by the suicide of his father when he was 15. And all the challenges that he then faced after that. And the way back for him was actually through football. And uh, this Mental Health Football Association that's been set up to, to help people. And um, it was a very powerful interview and it brings a tear, well, at least it brought a tear to my eye. But the point, the reason I mention this is that it's about thinking intersectorally about how we promote mental health and well-being. It's not just, and, as, and indeed as Ava Maria has just been talking about, it's not just about what the health system can do. It's about what schools can do. It's about what the community can do, many other sectors, employers, etc., etc. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the intersectoral approach and focus specifically on two, just examples, just two issues, but I could have chosen many others, around financial debts, the stress of debt, and how that impacts our mental health, and also this issue about loneliness, so the links between loneliness and uh, poor mental health as well. And to, to end, really, by saying a little bit about, actually, how do we overcome some of the barriers in convincing other people who may not be interested in health or mental health to invest in mental health? So I put up here a slide to start with. This is actually a slide from uh, Camilla Hoare, 
and colleagues uh, published a couple of years ago now. The point of this slide is basically to say that there are a lot of different factors that influence our mental health. I mean, in this case, they were looking at the links between the economic crisis, uh, depression and suicide. And as you can see from the, the slide here, you're talking about job loss, unemployment, bankruptcy, home repossessions, isolation, relationship strain, alcoholism, all sorts of things. It's a lot more than necessarily what the health system deals with. The health system is probably not going to deal with home repossessions. It's not going to deal with your loss of savings. Um, it is going to provide healthcare support, but it's about other things as well. And I'm just really trying to emphasise the fact that mental health really is something that you have to deal with across sectors and not just within the health sector. And Sarah mentioned that we've done some work previously, uh, Martin, myself, many other people, including Ava Maria. Um, Actually, and, and Sarah. <laughs> and Sarah. How can I forget you? <laughs> Terrible. Um, I, 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 looking at some of the economic cases around investing in mental health promotion. I'm not going to go over that evidence again tonight, but just to say that if you can actually put together an economic case that demonstrates that there is a potential possibility to avoid some costs uh, in the health system or indeed beyond the health system, then that can actually influence what happens locally. It can influence and um, help persuade commissioners to invest some more resource in mental health. And there are examples of how this report we produced in 2011, which interestingly actually was commissioned by the Labour government but actually then implemented by the coalition government, so it survived the change in government. It's interesting how that economic evidence base was actually used and has been very heavily cited in justifying investments locally in mental health uh, promotion interventions. But again, in that report, we emphasised, and I think we could have done it more than we did in the sense, we emphasised the impacts and the benefits to many sectors uh, and also emphasised that some of these things take a long time to actually uh, uh, be realised. Um, it's not just about achieving something overnight. So again, intersectoral, multiple impacts, takes time to achieve sometimes. Why do I mention that? Well, at the moment we're doing some more work, this time for Public Health England, to again look at some of the economic cases for investing in promotion and prevention, and sort of to build on what we did uh, five, no, six years ago now, scary. Uh, and we're looking at eight different interventions, and there's going to be a tool um, available for local authorities and clinical commissioning groups, probably in April, that sort of shows some of the potential, how much they have to pay, how, many, how much in the way of cost might be avoided, and over what time period uh, with some of these interventions. And I'm going to talk about two of those areas, debt and loneliness, in a second, but just to say that the way we're doing this, and, and I have to say, for those of you who are economists in the audience, I mean, economic modelling can actually be a very powerful tool to use because we don't necessarily have time to wait five years to always see what are the long-term outcomes, but you can use models to synthesise evidence of what works, sometimes from other countries, so you have to ask yourself, does it work in the UK? There may be some issues there. But, but you can synthesise this evidence on effects, attach local costs, and look at the potential for better outcomes and payback over time by modelling. And that's what we've tried to do here. Again, we're focusing, as we did six years ago, promotion and prevention, wide range of outputs and, uh, and impacts beyond and within the health system. And to be on the safe side, where we're not sure about things, and with models, you have to make a lot of assumptions, we try and be conservative in what we're saying, so as not to overestimate the potential benefits. 
And with that in mind, uh, I just want to focus on two areas now, and the first one is debt. Um, I mean, there's there's actually a a very large literature these days looking at the relationship between financial unmanageable debt and mental health. The um, Money Advice Service, they estimate um, from a recent survey they did that around about 16% of the UK population are what they consider to be over-indebted. And what they mean by that is either... Uh, missing a regular payment for three months within the last six months, or, or it's saying that they find meeting commitments a heavy burden. It's a lot of people. And um, we know from other literature, both in the UK and elsewhere, that unmanageable debt is associated, unsurprisingly, with higher risks of stress, anxiety, depressive disorders. Um, maybe between uh, like 1.33 to three times higher, maybe more. It depends on, specifically on the risk group you're looking at. Um, but the point is there's a, there's a relationship between debt and mental health. And, the, 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 and also there's been recent analysis looking at the whole economic crisis in England showing that about 4% of all suicides, looking at coroner records, these are a group in the University of Oxford have been doing this. They've been looking at coroner records and actually identifying, it sounds a small number, but 4% of all suicides that they looked at seem to be entirely related to issues around financial difficulty. And another 9% had some uh, significant influence. So there's issues of suicide, self-harm, there's issues of debt, depression, sorry, depression and anxiety disorders. Now the question is, um, can... Uh, are there things we can do to actually deal with the debt situation, which in turn then reduces the risk of people developing mental health problems or thinking about self-harm, etc.? That's the issue. And the challenge there, of course, is that it's not going to be the GP providing the debt advice. Well, it might be, but it's unlikely to be. It's going to be a specialist debt advice service, citizens' advice, something like that. It could be working with the banks. It could be working with uh, people who do um, housing associations where people get into debt on their rents, mortgage providers, all sorts of organisations that potentially could be involved in this. So what we've been doing is looking at debt and welfare advice services, really looking at financial debts, um, and we've been assuming and taking a population of people who do not have mental health problems. Now, that's important to note because there's also another literature which absolutely shows the risks of getting into debt if you already have a mental health problem as well. And I'm not, I'm not excluding that. It's just that the focus of this work is about prevention in a sense. So we've looked at a general population without mental health problems, and we've looked at the provision of debt, debt advice services. So this is about helping people to either renegotiate how they pay back debts, look at the various uh, technical... Um, um, there, there are various financial instruments now to try and protect you from the worst aspects of uh, bankruptcy and financial debts that people may want to do these days, voluntary agreements and so forth. So I forget the technical terms, but they're there. Um, but we've looked at that, and we also looked at the potential for some of these services being hosted within GP practices. Um, uh, and it's, this is an interesting area, because actually from a health system perspective, if you're a health system commissioner... This area should be quite attractive to you because, uh, and again, it's complex, but in, 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 in most cases, these not-for-profit debt advice services don't have to be funded by the health system. They can be funded through a complex mix of levies on the financial industry uh, and, and other kinds of uh, mechanisms. So in theory, a lot of them don't actually require much in the way of support from the health system, but they have a, the potential of health benefits. 
We've looked at trials evidence, and there's not a huge amount, but there is some. And then we've looked at the impacts uh, of this intervention. And, and there we've tried to emphasize it's not just about the impacts of avoiding depression. And, that, and of course, that has a benefit in terms of improving uh, or reducing the need for health and social care service use. But it's also about the impacts on the legal system. Uh, less people getting into debt, less legal proceedings, and all of the costs around that. It's about impacts on the local economy, because actually depression and anxiety mean people take more time off work. They, they may actually indeed uh, uh, lose their jobs. And, of course, there's the issue of self-harm and suicide as well. These are, I'm not like Martin or, or, or Ava Maria today, but these are, these are fancy slides. They're very simple slides, actually, today. But, but the point I just want to get across... Um, let's say you have a hypothetical population of 100,000 adults um, and you include uh, alongside the debt advice intervention a training package for GPs to make them more aware of the issues about finance and debt and, and to help refer people on. That may cost you about a half a million pounds to actually implement to the NH, uh, in total but only 14% of those costs necessarily fall on the NHS or local authorities in terms of GP training. But we calculate that maybe you're talking about a one over a million pounds in terms of economic uh, costs that could be avoided over five years. But again, notice from that slide, most of those costs aren't necessarily costs to the NHS. They're costs to the legal sector. They're costs in terms of workforce participation. They're costs in terms of the, 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 well, the, the, the personal consequences of avoiding suicidal behaviour. But we end up with a, a return on investment, basically, of £2.38. It doesn't sound enormous. You invest a pound in debt advice, you get £2.38 back. Now, if you've got a bank account and you put a pound in, you get £2.38 back over five years, you're doing pretty well. That's a pretty good rate, uh, yield, as they say, a pretty good rate of return. And it's got a reasonably high likelihood of being cost-effective if you just look at the impacts on the health service, but actually it's, it's likely to be highly cost-saving if you go beyond the health service. The challenge, of course, though, is how to actually get more of this implemented and funded um, in a time when uh, economic conditions are tight. How am I doing for time? Okay. So uh, five more minutes. Five minutes, right. Um, this, so that's just one area. It's an example, but the point of mentioning that example is that it means working with banks. It means working with debt advice services. Um, there's a great charity, uh, Money and Mental Health, um, uh, now that's set up to look at these issues. Uh, I think with, um, all sorts of things, money advice service. It's not just about the health system. Okay, so that's one area. The second area, though, I want to look at now is loneliness. And it's quite an interesting area. Lots of work now going on in the area of loneliness research. And again, it probably, it's not, a, it's not a, um, an earth-shattering revelation to recognize that loneliness may have impacts on your physical and mental health. Lower well-being. Um, there's some evidence that suggests you go and see the GP more. More likely to self-harm. More likely to be depressed have some physical health problems as well. So lots of potential impacts. And as I say, we know this from a number of longitudinal studies, not just in England, but often actually a lot in Holland, looking at the long-term impacts of loneliness on, on older people in particular. Um, now, I should say the work that we've done here is largely about older people, um, but loneliness actually is an issue that can affect anyone of any age. Um, but we focused on older people for this particular model. Rates of depression, three times as great in those who are lonely compared to those who are not. That's some uh, English data. Higher risks of heart disease. And actually something we haven't modelled, but um, my colleague Martin, I'm sure, would be very interested in the, the whole issue of the risk of dementia and loneliness. I mean, it still needs to be proven, but 
There may be issues there about avoiding loneliness and reducing the potential risk or progression of dementia. What have we looked at here? We've looked at the volunteering and activity-based intervention. Again, not something that's really going to be delivered by the health system. And it's really a, a signposting service. So it may be a, a desk in a library or in a supermarket or in the shopping mall or whatever where people can go and say that, well, people can actually go and find inf get information about activities they may wish to participate in. It's where people self-identify themselves as basically having uh, limited social networks and then sort of getting support for that. Um, we, in our model, we assume it's a local authority that will provide support for the signposting service itself and initial sort of taste of participation and activities. And we look at the impacts on being lonely and then we try and link those to the impacts on depression uh, and poor mental health. And again, when we think about the economic outcomes, of course we're interested in the impacts on health and social services. Um, in this particular model, we don't, because we don't include dementia, we don't look so much at social care, but in other models that, we've, that I've done, um, we also have a social care element as well, because if you can avoid dementia, then there's clearly impacts to the social care system. We look at self-harm, and we also look at the value of volunteering, because people who participate in activities actually often start volunteering themselves. Again, another hypothetical population... £175,000 to deliver this. Um, not about the same amount actually avoided to uh, the local NHS in terms of depression over a five-year period. So again, you get, a, you get a positive return on investment. This time, £1.26 for every pound you invest. Again, though, that's a very good rate of return compared to many things you might do uh, in the financial markets. And it's a conservative analysis, as I mentioned, because it doesn't talk about dementia. It doesn't talk about all of the physical health benefits of um, reduced uh, loneliness as well. So the take-home from that is really that we believe that a, a simple loneliness intervention with group activities is likely to be cost-saving, and it's a conservative analysis, and there's wider things to think about. So that's another area, but again, it's not about the health system delivering this. But it raises challenges, and I just want to end with a couple of quick messages on the challenges. How on earth do you actually persuade sectors to do things? Um, and I think, actually, you have to make sector-specific arguments. And I'm actually going to go back to Ava Maria's presentation now, because I'm wondering, for instance, within Head Start, uh, it may be interesting to think about the educational impacts as well as the mental health and well-being impacts. The reason I say that, um, we did some work for the WHO recently, just reviewing what's known about health literacy, um, teaching young people to think more about their health, including mental health. And what we were trying to emphasise there is that think about the educational benefits as well as the health benefits because it's the education sector that's probably paying for health literacy in schools in many circumstances. And that's absolutely the case with mental health interventions in schools. They're often being paid for by the headmaster, maybe the local authority if they still have control of the school, but it's not necessarily a, a, a health issue at all. So are there ways that we can think not only about the health impacts, but also about the educational impacts and the economic consequences of those as well? Another example of this, again, not linked to what I've just done, but it's, uh, it's, um, it's about domestic advisers in Kent. And it's a, it's a very, I thought it was appropriate today being International Women's Day to talk about domestic violence and trying to deal with that. But one of the ways in which this, uh, this uh, argument for uh, this service, domestic violence advisor service in Kent, was sold 
was the benefits it has that go beyond the health system, impacts on the criminal justice system, impacts on the, the fire authorities and so forth, uh, and lost employment costs. And those costs more than outweigh the, uh, those benefits more than outweigh the costs of the service. But again, they're going across sectors. It's not just the health system, it's these other sectors as well. Um, so I think there's an issue here about trying to, how you try and incentivize and encourage sectors to work together. Now, one way I think is to identify these sector-specific benefits. So for loneliness and local authorities, maybe it's about the impacts on social care services. Uh, for debt, and uh, it's, maybe it's about the impacts in terms of the impacts on the Ministry of Justice or its impacts in terms of uh, 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 creditors, actually, and uh, the... the uh, and the negative impacts of people getting into severe, significant debt. But there are also other things, just to end, that can be done to try and deal with some of these issues. And I've, I've highlighted a paper, again, we've, where we've looked at um, ways in which um, governments can perhaps encourage sectors to work together to promote health, sometimes mental health, sometimes other areas. And there may be ways in which you can set aside a budget for different sectors to collaborate. It may be that when you're setting up a, uh, a scheme or a directive, you actually say, Health sector, you must work with another sector. That's part of the deal. Otherwise, you don't get the money. Um, so there are ways to... Th so the thing, some, something for you to think about as well is how can we do more to try and encourage sectors to work together? Because my fear is perhaps the wrong word, but there are so many opportunities potentially to improve uh, our mental health. They do have economic benefits, but an awful lot of them require cooperation and collaboration across sectors. Maybe it's about the Prime Minister knocking heads together or the, the Mayor at local government level, but it's also about trying to, I think, make these arguments, economic arguments, not just for health, but also for education, for children, or for these other sectors as well, and recognise that, that we need to do that because many of these services are delivered outside of the health system. So I'll just end on that point. So thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much, Dave, for highlighting that and for um, the important issue and also thinking about how we, we can confront it. Um, and I'm going to invite our first discussant now to speak, uh, who is Antonis Kosoulis. He joined the Mental Health Foundation in February 2016 as the Assistant Director for Innovation and Development Programs, and his experience includes time in industry and mostly academia, where he has been an investigator in various research protocols, including clinical trials at UCL and at Harvard School of Public Health. Thank you. Uh, I've started thinking about what would I, what would I say, and then I, I had a page of notes coming here, and then now I have two or three pages of notes, but <laughs> which I won't cover everything. But I think from my perspective, I'm working in public health practice, so um, it's a question of how we can use this type of evidence to inform um, new interventions, to inform new approaches. Um, and this is, so if, I, if I'm thinking about what the um, uh, presenter said, um, and I take a life course approach, so let's talk about schools to start with. Um, I think there is a definitely very good case that the earlier we get into schools, the more we interact with the students, uh, increase awareness, help seeking behaviors, tackle stigma, um, we can start breaking that, that um, circle of the, you know, the attitude circle that leads to, um, uh, to behavior and um, action. In this case, stigma leads to discrimination, which leads to social isolation. Social isolation obviously leads quite often to uh, being a vi victim of bullying or becoming a bully or um, um, essentially uh, dropping out of education. 
um, and dropping out of education leads, you to, leads to having less chances of um, becoming employed. So a range of factors that um, uh, have a huge mental health um, impact and a huge economic impact um, that could potentially be um, targeted through these, these type of interventions. Um, looking into the uh, into adult um, working age, um, there is, I like this um, notion of um, separating mental health uh, with mental well-being. Um, what services traditionally do is trying to move people from sort of diagnosable levels of mental illness to maybe non-diagnosable levels of mental illness, but um, it, it, it's not just that. Uh, it's definitely not just that. And, and for us, we need a bit of movement across maybe different axes, which is um, what, what are the tools that we can give people to um, essentially have an increased mental well-being in the sense of how they can have maybe a diagnosis but still be in employment, still be in education, still have good relationships with their family and, and their neighbours. So um, it's a question of how we use this kind of evidence um, uh, in, that, um, in that sense. And um, what, what David said around um, obviously all these programmes that need to happen outside the NHS um, we have been calling for what we like to call as mental health in all policies. So it's not just working with healthcare, but also criminal justice and um, uh, education, uh, employment, various other sectors. Um, looking at later life, loneliness is the major risk factor, obviously, um, in later life for mental illness. Um, I have to say, all the interventions that I, that I have seen that are well designed. Um, that are t trying to tackle loneliness um, in later life, they all have been cost-beneficial um, or, or at least have some promise um, of, um, uh, of being cost-effective. So um, think of all the things. If, if loneliness is the main risk factor leading to depression, um, uh, you know, think of um, de depression's cost that um, Martin raised in his first few slides. Um, think of the link to volunteering, uh, if we think that that post-retirement age is, uh, you know, is, uh, is an age where you can become an active maybe volunteer. Um, I was looking at the Bank of England um, economics uh, for volunteering today, um, 24 billion um, of economic output for Britain from formal and frequent volunteering, 19 billion from informal volunteering, which is that mutual support in the community. And, and probably another maybe eight or nine from that infrequent volunteers. So talking about 50 billion pounds output to the um, British economy, which is pretty much the value of the British energy sector. Um, so, you know, st we're starting from, from a problem, you set a goal, and then all the steps that you would tackle, and one of these uh, certain graphs we saw how, how things, how the recession, for example, leads to suicide. Any, any stops that you can put into that, into that process leads to, um, uh, to, to massive impact. Um, so from our perspective, uh, in working in, in public mental health practice, um, having this level of good research evidence is crucial, is important, because um, it, I think that there's a very good argument that if you have this evidence, then every time you develop and start piloting or testing an intervention, you don't have to spend all, this, all the time to develop frameworks that, again, need to prove that evidence base. So we can, um, we can try to accelerate access to new interventions, to, uh, to new innovations for people, um, and measure maybe not necessarily the links that we already know, but maybe measure what is important 
for the sectors and for the organizations that we work with. Um, and this will make uh, a more attractive case for us to, to pilot and test new approaches um, in different sectors outside um, healthcare. Um, I'll, I'll close on, the, uh, on a couple of notes. Um, what are the, uh, obviously, what is the most expensive place to be? Um, it, you know, it's prison and it's hospital. So, um, you know, this is, this is the whole argument around prevention. If we think about the links between mental illness and criminality, the links between um, the burden, not like the word in this context, but the burden of illness, of mental illness on, um, on the NHS, then, you know, there's, there's a whole argument around prevention and prevention intervention so that we can prevent at least, at the very least, um, uh, how many people end up in the criminal justice system or end up in um, secondary and tertiary services. Um, I, I like sometimes to, to compare um, mental illness and mental health to um, other, public health, uh, other public health approaches like, um, say, take a, take a broken leg, right? Take a fracture of the leg. It's not, in order to prevent um, broken legs, this, you can do a, a number of different things historically. Uh, obviously, we, we've introduced uh, seat belts. We've uh, if, if broken legs are a result of, um, of traffic accidents, we've introduced um, uh, you know, traffic control. Uh, we've introduced uh, different cameras and, and speed limits. Um, so a number of public health interventions that led to um, people, um, maybe, maybe a reduction in, in fractures as, uh, as a result of accidents. Um, it's the same with mental health. The more we implement um, different measures and different um, interventions across the different things that surround the individual, not just focusing on, the, you know, on that model of the broken individual, but maybe focusing on the model of the broken community that does not support the individual to be in employment, to be in good relationships, then the more likely we are to, um, to succeed in um, having impact both on, um, uh, both on the economic side and on the actual mental health side. Um, the problem is that um, if, you, if you have a broken leg and you, um, and you have just crashed your car and you're in the middle of the street, uh, you're thinking, uh, you know, an ambulance is likely to come in the next few minutes and they will take me for treatment. Um, if you're in mental health crisis, if you're in crisis um, and you're lying in the middle of the road, the problem is that you're probably thinking that, oh my God, I'm going to be sectioned, I'm going to be detained um, or something. So, so I would start on, on that green point, I would start... Um, from encouraging, encouraging people to tackle the stigma because this is uh, essentially it's a big factor that leads to, um, to a lot of these economic and mental illness um, outcomes. Thank you. Well, thanks very much for these uh, thoughtful comments, Antonius. Um, so I'd like to introduce our second discussant now, who is Sarah Carr. Sarah is an associate professor of mental health research at Middlesex University. She has nearly 20 years' experience of research, knowledge management, and policy analysis in mental health and social care, and she also has service user experience in adult mental health. Thank you. So, yes. <laughs> Guess from that, that I'm, I'm going to give a sort of perspective from um, a service, service user perspective, really. Um, I work in academia. Um, a lot of the research I do is informed by having a lived experience perspective of, of living with mental health problems and, and using mental health services. And I believe that experiential knowledge has, a, has an important contribution to make 
um, to research. I'm also the uh, vice chair of the National Survivor User Network, and I'll sort of refer back to that a bit later. So just to begin with, um, when I was first invited to, to, to give this um, response, I thought, uh, oh, health economics, oh, no numbers. Um, I'm uh, a, a qualitative researcher, so numbers slightly scare me. But when I got to the end of, of, of looking at the presentations today, I thought, hey, maybe um, service users, people living with mental health problems, trying to maintain mental well-being and user-led organisations, maybe they have a friend in health economists. And I'd not thought of that before. So that, 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 that was positive. Um, I think the research that we've looked at today does show the political relationship of research to mental health policy and, and practice, and particularly this economic research that presents mental health and well-being as socially, politically, and personally complex. Um, I'm particularly struck by the, the perspective that mental health promotion and prevention exists beyond health services, and particularly from a perspective of somebody who gets caught up um, in what I called, you know, the, the knowledge production efforts of service users uh, and survivor researchers, they're often caught up in the trap of the sort of permitted activity, the permitted knowledge production activity of making services more efficient and more effective. But this type of research uh, presents a, a, a bigger, more complex picture, more nuanced evidence of mental well-being and um, some of the implications for living with mental health problems. Um, mental health for me is a, is a long-term uh, fluctuating condition that I live with, and this type of research gives me insight into that in a broader, uh, more complex picture. So I think this type of research could be, potentially, and which is why it's great to have these public forums, could be a catalyst for conversations uh, with service users practitioners and communities to find um, common ground, particularly about uh, discussions on economics and, and costs, which currently is highly political and potentially quite emotive in current policy. Uh, people with mental health problems are ideologically constructed as burdens, as drains on the system, as being expensive um, to the welfare benefit system. But I think looking at this type of research, it could be used uh, to challenge this construct. I think in calculating costs, we need to think about the impact of what um, Edgar Kahn, uh, in his book about co-production and, and the core social economy called No More Throwaway People, called being declared useless in socio-economic terms by uh, health systems uh, workplaces and society. So those that are declared useless by those systems are then declared burdens. Uh, is that okay? Does that make sense uh, in economic terms? So this type of research could have the potential to challenge that political discourse and also give insight into uh, the lived reality on the ground of people struggling with debt uh, struggling with welfare benefit cuts and trying to maintain their mental well-being and trying not to go into crisis. So, in engaging with research about wider economic case for promoting mental health, can we ask different questions about value? We don't, which is a relief to me, have to talk about bed days. 
we can move beyond the biomedical model to exploring complex aspects of the social model and understand different understandings of disability. And um, I know it's in a very different context, but I noticed Martin's presentation, uh, mental health uh, problems are classified as, as disabilities in that discourse. But this isn't what service users commonly think or, or perceive of mental health problems or are told they should perceive mental health problems as disabilities. They're not. Um, and also, uh, it's not really what some policy advisors think either about people living with mental health problems uh, who are told that they don't have real disabilities. So thinking about this research terminology and what it could mean politically, we could begin to question inaccessible or unhealthy workplaces and think about the protections afforded by the Equality Act, reasonable adjustments for people with mental health problems seen as a disability and uh, thinking about improving employment rates. In a letter 10 days ago in The Independent from leaders of uh, psychology and psychotherapy societies, uh, they, they warned that the DWP must see that a bad job is worse for your mental health than unemployment, and that's in the light National Audit Office uh, report just showing limited evidence that the benefits sanction systems work or are cost-effective. So within the context of the research as presented here, I think we could begin to have an informed discussion about the effects of poverty, deprivation, social isolation, bullying, unhealthy workplaces, the longer-term effects of investing in the mental well-being of children and young people. David's intersectorial approach to mental health and well-being reveals the actions beyond the mental health system that are uh, familiar to those living with mental health problems, so the, the factors that impact on mental health and well-being, and they actually echo something that's called the unrecovery star, something that was made up by some uh, service user uh, mental health activists. It's their version of, of the recovery star, which is used in mental health practice. Um, but they, they, they've put on the unrecovery star the broader factors that have negative impacts on mental health and well-being that they believe should be considered in any conversation a practitioner is having about a person's recovery. So they talk about social deprivation, poverty, stigma and discrimination. So can this research be a catalyst for a new collaborative work with service users and communities to harness knowledge and perspectives that are not just about services, but more in line with conversations service users, mental health activists and communities are having about mental health and well-being, specifically the effects of poverty, social deprivation, welfare benefits, reform and uh, work. Uh, the evidence is piling up, I'm sure, Quite a few of you may have seen the Samaritans report coming out uh, this week, uh, dying from inequality and the, showing the link, once again, between socioeconomic disadvantage and suicidal behaviour. On the margins, um, some of the research I've done um, uh, in, in conjunction uh, with the National Survivor User Network um, and looking at some of the activities that user-led organisations get up to on the margins, service users and communities have developed their own local organisations, systems of support, social networks, where conventional mental health services have failed. People just seem to be able, despite the odds, to mobilise social capital, particularly in marginalised communities, black and minority ethnic communities in particular. 
And these types of initiative have a prevention and promotion role as well. However, they're disappearing rapidly at a time just when building communi community capacity is a policy directive in mental health and social care. Why? Because for the local authorities and NHS trusts at least, they're not seen as worth investing in. The economics aren't understood or adequately evidenced but they provide exactly the type of social support identified here as being beneficial and give people an opportunity to engage in neutral support, volunteering activities, reducing loneliness uh, and in increasing social inclusion. So do we make the economic case for investing in emotional and relational resources and recognising this as productivity? Can we promote mental well-being in children and young people to prevent uh, mental health problems in adulthood and use a different language to describe distress that moves away uh, from clinical language. What struck me about Ava Maria's presentation was a clarity about mental well-being, something that is really not very clear at all, but the emphasis on flourishing, feeling valued, being, feeling useful, feeling good about yourself and being able to deal with problems. These aren't terms that are usually associated with mental health service randomised control trials which use diagnostic criteria or symptom-related measures, but that language makes a lot of sense to service users, survivors and their communities and organisations because the language takes us beyond the confines of the medical model uh, and it's quite powerful. And I can see that people in this type of research can be constituted as citizens rather than just service users. So mental health uh, promotion and prevention, um, this type of research recognises the complexity. Um, I think, from my perspective, as somebody that um, could be a burden, has been a burden, I have cost a reasonable amount in my time, and I don't want to, um, I welcome this. Um, from uh, the National Survivor User Network perspective, we do have a manifesto, we're fairly political, um, have a look at it. Basically, what this says is we don't want it to go into crisis, we don't want to be expensive. So to conclude, I'm going to steal um, some words and an analogy that was used by Anne Cook, who's the Director of Psychology at Canterbury Christchurch University, who said in an article on austerity and uh, the Origins of Happiness report, uh, that came out in December um, and it proved to be a, a bit controversial uh, in some quarters um, saying that mis misery was not necessarily to do with, with money um, and said cholera wasn't eradicated by developing new treatments it was eradicated by improving drains back in pre-Victorian times thank you Thanks very much for, for these very thoughtful comments, Sarah. Um, and thank you to everybody, all of the speakers, for their, their talks and for their responses. I think I'd like to invite the, the speakers up, um, up to the front now. Uh, so we're now going to open the floor to questions from the audience. 
And if you can let us know uh, when you state your question, if you can let us know uh, your, your name and your affiliation. Also wait for uh, the stewards to come with the microphone before uh, beginning to speak, because we are, we are being recorded. Um, and uh, yeah, just try to, to keep the questions, questions focused, if you can also. Are lots of uh, <laughs> okay. I think you're first in the, the green coat. Oh, hello, um, my, hello. My name is Tarek Salim. Uh, I'm a director of Mind in Croydon. Got a question. Uh, I missed the first probably couple of speeches. I came late. I'm sorry about that. So been, this might have been covered. Um, there's a bit big discrepancy between the uh, expenditure on non-mental health, physical health, mm -hmm. and on mental health. Mm -hmm. and maybe it's about maybe 7% of the total budget is mental health. I don't know, you might know. So that's the first question. What is the proportion if you know? And the second question is, what do you think of this discrepancy? This is to all the panel members. Mm -hmm. What do you think causes this discrepancy? How can it be alleviated? Okay, thanks very much. So it's about the inequality of uh, yeah, spending and the budgets between physical and mental health. Okay, who wants to kick off? <laughs> I a quick comment. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's fluctuation around not 8, 9, up to 12% of uh, spending on health in this country. That's the identifiable spending. I think it doesn't include primary care, um, so it's quite hard to break down primary care. Uh, and as you will know, and many people will know, um, when people do present, particularly at primary care, but also in hospital now, they don't just have one condition, one label, if you like. Like. In fact, much better health care today uh, is resulting from people with non-mental health problems having their mental health issues examined. Um, and the story that one almost hears is, you know, the cancer patient who says, I'm feeling really down, and, and the, the cancer doctor says, well, you've got cancer, I'm not surprised. Um, whereas now they're more likely, I would hope, to say, well, perhaps you've got a diagnosable mental health problem which we could treat, and by treating that mental health problem, it maybe will help you, you know, deal with your cancer and, and the rest of your life. So, so I think we do need to put more money into mental health, without any doubt, in my view, but it's quite hard sometimes to identify exactly what is spent on mental health. I would also add to that that um, not spending on mental health is short-sighted because spending more on mental health will have or can have positive impacts for what you spend on physical health. Um, particularly you take a condition like um, diabetes and there are a number of studies that show that if you better manage the psychological impacts of the diabetes then you, you, add, you can reduce the risk of diabetes-related complications, that, some of which can be incredibly expensive. So it can be a bit short-sighted. And I suppose not, not a party political, but a strangely political point in the sense is that I never understand, I still don't understand, why there's, there are lots of numbers out there showing that there's a difference in life expectancy, even for people with depression in some cases of 10 years or more, and for the psychosis 20 years, why that never really gets to the fore of, pub, of the public consciousness in the same way that life expectancy differentials for cancers do, because you know, and that's not just a, that's not a criticism of the UK per se, because it's the same even in the Nordic countries of the world you know, but there's this issue about why, why there isn't enough attention given to that life expectancy differential mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you want 
and to add anything ever? Um, I think we're probably also, if we're just looking at health services, I think we're probably underestimating how much we're really spending, maybe not on treated mental health problems, but on untreated ones. Um, if you missed the first presentation, Martin had some um, great slides showing that productivity impacts are actually quite um, expensive. So I think actually shifting money from there to treatment and early intervention and prevention, that would be the thing to do, really. Okay, thanks. Women in the red. Hello, I'm Katie Evans from the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute. Uh, thank you for mentioning us, David. It's fantastic to see debt um, being covered by this work. We're really looking forward to seeing your work for Public Health England and this really important economic modelling. My question is, what would you like um, charities, third sector organisations like us, to do with this work? How do you think we can most powerfully use it in our campaigning? Well, um, actually, in a sense, I should be asking you for advice on how to do that, <laughs> not the other way around. But, I mean, to use your networks to get the message out there that actually um, there is an economic case that also... Um, you know, it's not, it's not, in this case, potentially not about investing to save, actually in terms of who bears the cost, and you know this much better than I do, but who actually pays for these services, that the complexity, in a sense, is actually quite attractive from an NHS point of view, because unless I've got it horribly wrong, it's basically not really the NHS that pays for a lot of these services. So I think there's a lot you can do there. And also I think as well... Um, Whereas in the Public Health England work, we focus, as I said, on the general population and the risk of developing mental health problems as a result of debt, you also can then square, square the circle, if that's probably the right term anyway, um, in terms of also, also putting that into the context of what can be done to help people manage existing, with mental health problems, manage their debts. And I think as well, from a political point of view, thinking are there things you can do, I mean I've talked about debt advice services, but there are issues around uh, um, the, the, the reforms that were done recently or fairly recently about the maximum APR that could be charged by certain lenders and that, those kinds of reforms are very important as well, so not seeing this as the only way of dealing with uh, uh, debt and the impacts on mental health, but also thinking about what are the other complementary uh, tools which could include regulation of the financial uh, sector and industry as well. Martin, I think you wrote a note down. I don't know if you wanted uh, to add. No, I'm, just, I'm just thinking that, that sometimes, um, and I think uh, we, we've all apologised for this at various occasions, um, sometimes you know, you can, people can be pushing the, the, the consequences of debt, the consequences of a whole range of things, and sometimes it's the economic argument which is pivotal. Um, and, and I do always apologise for that because uh, economics is not, you know, we're not trying to save money by treating mental health problems. We're trying to make people healthier and have better lives. But sometimes that economic argument is just enough to change that particular uh, decision, whether it's by the Chancellor's check or by a local commissioner, whoever it may be. So I think, you know, we would want the evidence from our work to be used alongside the evidence of non-economic consequences of, of mental health issues. There's a gentleman in the black jacket. Try to move to the middle of the room. <laughs> uh, Toby Chambers. Uh, the, going back to the, um, I think it was big lottery funded. I can't remember the name of the program. Um, one concern I have, I, I mean, everything was brilliant, but I, I have one concern that the outcome was kind of employability. And what does that mean? Um, because I, I feel we kind of just go back um, you know, it, should the outcome, and I pr appreciate the, the funders probably 
steer you towards a certain direction, but should the outcome be something more than just employability? Um, so it's, it's head start if you want to have a, have a look on the internet. Um, it, I, think, I think it is meant to be more than that. I think the focus is very much on mental well-being, which is going to be measured quite closely to the actual intervention. But it's then about um, trying to, to solve this problem that we have with preventative interventions, that we, have, we don't really have evidence on costs for problems that haven't materialized yet. So people might be developing mental health problems, but they haven't yet. So we might not, if we measured all the costs, we would not see anything changing. So then we couldn't make a, a cost-based argument for the intervention. So what we need to do is we need to look into the future and see what happens to people down the line. And then when you um, combine that with, with the fact that you'll have to get those data from somewhere, um, you need to focus on outcomes that you can actually measure quite clearly and that have really clear cost consequences to be able to make that argument and I think that's why employability features down the line quite heavily because that's something we know um, we can talk about. So I, 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 I um, agree that it's um, sort of on its own is not very satisfying but it's supposed to be alongside mental well-being, mental health and long term as well. If I can just add to that, I think from my, from my perspective if we know from the evidence that there is a link, an evidence-based link between unemployment, poor education, dropping out of education, and mental illness. And if the way to convince a school or a, or a company or a community uh, or a local authority to take up a project is through measures of employability and economic measures, then I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable with, with um, doing that because we know that by improving employability, uh, however we measure it, we will also improve um, mental health. So... Um, I think it's, it's just using the best available evidence in each case. Um, and I take Martin's point, which is, um, you know, quite often we have to, to sell what we do to the people that have um, control over budgets. Uh, and, you know, if, if what speaks to them is, um, is an economic argument, then, you know, fair enough, let's just try to make that economic argument. But we know on the back of this that there is a mental health, you know, a health and illness argument as well. Just one other thing on that. I would also add that there are times that we can talk about the economic benefits, not just of employment, but of volunteering, of caring for other family members, of just contributing. There are ways in which economists have fancy calculations for calculating those values as well. So, but I agree. I mean, employment is ten, tends to be an option to open doors in terms of who holds with purse strings, particularly in government. But, but there are other things we can and do measure, actually. Yeah, when you just kind of say employment, I kind of go back to that case um, a few years ago where the, um, I think it was the work, work, work for welfare where I think someone wanted to volunteer in a um, museum or something and had to work at um, kind of ASDA or something. That's, that's the only problem when we talk about employment. We, we kind of get pigeon-toed into those rather than more than just um, you know, the, the volunteering and, and all the others. The women in the, the grey sweater. Hi, um, I'm Emma. I'm a 
MSc Public Policy student. Um, I hope you'll forgive. I've got more or less two points. The first is if you could potentially speak to the issues of the intersection between being LGBTI and mental illness. Um, LGBTI people tend to have a high propensity both as a cause and effect of being LGBTI quite often. And then the second point is kind of my reading of... um, the kind of the causal mechanisms you've discussed have been very much features of a modern society. Um, so increased stresses, increased um, isolation, um, increased potential access to bad credit and those things. Um, I wonder if you could speak to other modern stresses that we've lost, potentially um, decreased activity and exercise, access to green spaces and things like that. Thanks. And if you could also just remember to introduce yourself. Can I just just pick up your first point? Um, the way I know we didn't mention that explicitly, but it's one of the things that Head Start is trying to um, address in the sense that it is considered um, a risk factor that might lead to people then being selected for additional support and, and trying to set up spaces and, and, and support networks to, to help people in that sense. So it is, it's definitely a consideration in that program? I mean, in terms of the kind of causes or the, the, the contributory factors to poor mental health, uh, I mean, it's, it's un, it is pretty clear that, that the changing way in which we work, for instance, probably does contribute to poor mental health and more stress. And lots of surveys, both in the UK and in other European countries, certainly point to higher levels of Stress uh, and also issues like job insecurity these days is much more of an issue than it was um, uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So, so there are those kind of factors that are there. Um, and just an anecdote in a sense, but um, the people of Iceland who were really badly affected by the economic crisis, there were some benefits to them of the fact that they spent more time with their families. You know, they had more time for, to, to interact with each other which, because, you know, more people were out of work in a sense. So there are, um, uh, yeah, mo- modern life probably does make a contribution, but, but also there's probably better measurement now and more awareness than there was 50 years ago of these issues. They just wouldn't be talked about. So it's, it's probably a bit of that there as well. Just one, one, one further sort of footnote to that is that, I mean, we're finishing some work, Sarah's involved and various other people involved on bullying, and we're looking at the effects of being bullied, uh, or being reported being bullied at ages 7 and 11, and how that continues to have an effect on your health, your mental health, up to age 50. That's an effect on your employment, on your earnings, on your home ownership, on a whole range of other things. Now, but the issue with bullying is, and there are lots of interventions now, that bullying has changed considerably with change in technology and now we have this cyberbullying issue and it's much much harder to identify what is what bullying now constitutes and and certainly i think much harder to to stamp it out or to 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 be aware of it and then stamp it out so i think you know many changes of course there's also possibilities of using modern technology to deliver treatment there's other possibilities but i think you know with the changes in the way that society interacts that does bring new stresses and new roots should we say into mental health issues that we have to be aware of I think we have time for one more question. Uh, I think the woman in the black scarf has been waiting. Good evening. I'm a postgrad student in the Department of Social Policy, and uh, I have a curiosity. So where does stigma come from around mental health issues? I mean, why is it perceived as legitimate to have a leg broken from an accident and not a breakdown? I have this, yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, well, I, I agree it's a very important issue, so I, I do a lot of research around stigma and discrimination, um, and, and I think it, it, it does uh, play a huge role both, um, I mean, and I think it did come out in a lot of the, the talks so far, both in, in thinking about the, the impact on, on social exclusion, which, which I may have roots in, in stigma discrimination. I think, uh, Sarah Carr, you talked a lot about kind of the, the impact of stigma and discrimination across a uh, range of, of um, yeah, life domains. And, um, and, and I think that th- there is now more, more research just in terms of maybe getting, getting this recognized in terms of linking this, this to economic issues and looking at, yeah, well, maybe in terms of getting investment and, and getting people interested in the issue, looking at the, the costs associated with, with stigma and, and social exclusion, um, both at the, the individual level, but I think also in terms of what we were, we were talking about, the, the first question in terms of possibly structural discrimination and an investment in some, some programs which um, may, may be, be influenced by, by stigma and discrimination in terms of lack kind of investment. So, so I think it's a, a huge issue that, that's running across all, all of these themes. Um, sir, yeah, go ahead. Just an Oh, sorry, could you wait for the microphone just so we can hear you? Thanks. Just really a comment, actually, about um, yeah, stigma. Well, the, the government have actually invested mm. in um, anti-stigma campaigns, Times Change campaign. They've been given quite a lot of government money um, when, you know, at a time of, of, of austerity. So that goes to show, you know, that there, there is a recognition and, and, a, and a great concern um, for the impacts of, of, of mental health stigma. Yeah, no, thanks. I was, I was just came from a meeting at Time to Change right now, so you're, you're right, yeah, important to mention. Um, well, I think, I think we we're out of time actually now, so... Um, I just want to, to thank everybody for, for coming this evening to the talk, and if we can also just thank the speakers one more time for their excellent